0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This Saturday, the 20th of May, is World Metrology Day. It marks the 148th anniversary of the Meter Convention, which was signed in Paris and set international standards for the kilogram and the meter. It also marked the foundation of the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, universally known as BIPM, which exists to this day and coordinates international efforts in maintaining and improving measurement standards. This year also marks the 100th anniversary of the world's first scientific instrumentation and measurement journal and to chat about how measurement technology has evolved over the years and where the future lies for the discipline, I'm in conversation with the journal's editor-in-chief. The journal Measurement Science and Technology is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, and I'm joined down the line by Andrew Yakut who is the journal's editor-in-chief. Andrew is principal scientist at the UK's National Physical Laboratory, where he leads the Dimensional Nanometrology Program at the lab. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Nice to meet you.
1: So, yes, the journal is 100 years old, and uh, I think you'd like me to
0: say a little bit about it. Yeah, that's right. We'll talk a bit. We'll, we'll talk a bit about your work at NPL a bit later in the podcast. But let's, yeah, let's talk about a uh, hundred years of measurement science and technology. So I understand that you've commissioned a series of centenary articles that will be published uh, in the journal in 2023. Can you give us a flavour of uh, some of the topics that these articles will cover?
1: Yeah, sure. The idea was to relate the centenary articles to some of the articles that appeared in the first issue or the first volume of um, Journal of Scientific Scientific Instruments, as it was then. So the first article we published was written by me, and it was a review looking backwards and looking forwards, uh, updating the original article by Rayner that described the scope of the journal. And Since then, we've um, published an article on ultrasound measurement, which relates to an original article on the optical sonometer. And we published an article on global positioning systems, which related to an article on benchmarking the ordnance survey. We've also provisionally accepted some other articles related to mass metrology, measuring very small masses and very small forces that relate back to a couple of papers in the first issue on weighing loads of a few milligrams. We've got several articles under review um, that are yet to be published. One's on measuring very small currents, which uh, relates back to articles on generating small currents. And we have an article reviewing 100 years of astronomy. Uh, There are several more articles in the pipeline, but we're yet to, where people have promised to write things, we're yet to receive them. Uh, because they're due in later this year. So I think we'll leave that as a surprise for the readers.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's great. That sounds like a a fascinating mix of articles. And and as you said, the journal began life in 1923 as the Journal of Scientific Instruments. And uh, apparently this was the the world's first scientific instrumentation and measurement journal, and also the first research journal which is produced which was produced by the Institute of Physics. And I should also say that uh, the Institute of Physics produces the Physics World weekly podcast as well. Now, you mentioned the first article. It was by someone called E.H. Rayner, who I think may have been at NPL or had some sort of Uh, connection to NPL. And in the article, Rayner sets out the scheme for the journal. Andrew, how has that plan unfolded over the past 100 years?
1: Yes, you're right. Rayner outlined the scope for the journal and his plan has unfolded and developed very well. So perhaps let's say, look at what he suggested. Um, He recognized that there was it was important for people to use the correct instrumentation for their measurements, and that there was a broad choice of instruments available. He also recognized that often textbooks didn't contain the most up-to-date information about instrumentation, and also they didn't go into enough detail for the readers to be able to replicate results. And in order to keep up with developments and instrumentation, there was the need to have a regular journal. All of this is still very true today. Uh, the, it was an amazing vision for measurement science and technology and the need for the journal. Um, today, the journal is a really a forum for sharing advancements in measurement science and it covers many areas of science. So when the journal was formed, it was predominantly physics-based perhaps with a little bit of chemistry and a hint of biology. Today, the journal really is multidisciplinary, covering a broad range of themes related to measurement to do with physics, chemistry, engineering, biology, even some articles related to geological um, aspects of measurement. Um, and, And this is really one of the strengths of the journal, that measurement is pervasive, it's everywhere, and often issues associated with measurement um, in one area are relevant for another area, which was yet another thing pointed out by Rainer. So it really has evolved extremely nicely, and there was a very, very good vision a hundred years ago.
0: Oh, that uh, that's amazing. And and Andrew, I would imagine that uh, that that there have been a lot of significant breakthroughs in measurement science that have happened since 1923 and and some of them have have happened at npl and uh similar labs um around the world can you talk about um how measurement science has evolved in the last hundred years yes certainly
1: so i think one of the first things to say is that measurement science is really an international um affair these days uh Back in 1875, when the meter convention was signed, that was predominantly to promote trade. Today, uh, measurement science is necessary for manufacturing. We have um, things such as aircraft where components are produced in different countries. So if people were working to different measurement scales, uh, there would be a major problem. Uh, So I think this, this is something... Again, that's reflected in the journal in that the editorial board is now an international editorial board. There was a concerted effort some years ago to broaden the um, editorship of the journal and be inclusive to other labs. In terms of advances in measurement science, yes, there's a whole range of instruments today that people 100 years ago could have only dreamt of um and i think rather than talking about specific instruments generally let's talk about measurement the idea of the traceability and international standards in measurement is now much more important for the reasons i uh, mentioned earlier there's much more emphasis on uncertainty in measurement so that's looking at the errors associated with the measurement and been international uh, large international effort towards standardizing the way we evaluate errors with measurements Measurements have led to many breakthroughs in science, and those in turn have led to improvements in measurement capability. But I'll, I'll stop now, Hamish, because I think that leads nicely into your next question. <laughs>
0: So, so Andrew, how has instrumentation and measurement changed since Rayner wrote that article? I mean, one thing I can think of is the the use of, of of computers in in instrumentation and measurement, but there must be a lot of other changes that have occurred. Sure. Yes, there have been so. If we look at a hundred
1: years ago, a lot of the instruments were often mechanically based and the electronics was, by today's standards, very cumbersome and simple, valves and um, wiring, no printed circuit boards. Today there's much more instrumentation available to the scientist, a lot of which is very specialised. We can think in anyone working in an area of science just has to look in the lab at the range of instruments available that our scientists from 100 years ago could only dream of. Certainly, electronics has led to automation of measurements, feedback and control, and data acquisition, much faster data acquisition um, for dynamic measurements. Think of a chart recorder some years ago. We wouldn't use that today. Electronics or computers would be used to record data. Think of servo control go back 100 years and think of the steam engine with the mechanical governor. Then, as we moved into the 20, further into the 20th century, servo controlled done electronically Now it can be done with software. So all of this has been enhanced by um, computers and the ability to collect data with computers. Um, and it's meant that instrumentation becomes much more widespread. Uh, and there are many more opportunities and possibilities for people to do things in their own labs than there were years ago. This has also led to a trend of much, much more data, um, the so-called metadata that people can collect uh, when recording data from experiments. So we could almost be flooded with data, which again presents challenges for data analysis and sorting out what's valid and what isn't
0: and And, of course, Andrew, you're at NPL, which uh, I suppose is is very famous for being the place where um the atomic clock was first developed. I think it was probably a good twenty years after the uh, or or more after the launch of uh, of the journal. But you, you know, for me, that's uh, I suppose as somebody who's not really that familiar with metrology, the you know the idea that we've now got atomic clocks on chips and atomic clocks in space. Um, in that hundred years is, uh, you you know, I find that amazing. And I'm sure there's lots of of other examples of uh, of how the technology has progressed so quickly.
1: Yes, Uh, we have the atomic clocks, um, as you said, which again, the fact that they can be on a chip, amazing. There are pictures around the lab of the first atomic clock and it was a massive piece of equipment. Lots of other things have been done about at NPL, but um, perhaps if you like, I could talk a little bit about the nanotechnology and the nanoscience area that I'm, I'm involved with.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Please do, Andrew. Yeah. yeah. What, um, what is dimensional nanometrology and what, what do you and your colleagues get up to in your lab?
1: Yeah. So dimensional, as it implies, is measuring the size of things. So for nanometrology, it's measuring the size of very small things at the nanoscale, small distances, or larger distances and objects that require an accuracy of a few nanometers. So the sort of things we get involved with fall within NPL's remit. So as you know, NPL is the UK's national metrology lab. It maintains the um, measurement infrastructure that's based on the SI um, throughout the UK, but it also undertakes um, science, engineer, and engineering work to underpin prosperity and the quality of life. So, work that has a real impact on industry and people's lives. So, within our area, we carry out research into dimensional nanoscale measurements. So, it's how can we, how can we provide a measurement infrastructure? How can we measure things accurately for people. How can we transfer that accuracy outside of the measurement lab? Um, The techniques that we use, optical interferometry, um, bringing metrology to atomic force microscopy, which opened up the whole nanoscale world back in the 1980s, but trying to make quantitative measurements rather than just imaging and getting pretty pictures at the nanoscale, actually measuring the dimensions of objects that we're looking at. Um, we're also involved with nanopositioning, uh, so that's looking at systems that can move things through small distances. And We do a lot of work with a UK company in this area of moving through small distances very accurately. You can't use a micrometer, it has to be done with piezo-based systems, um, which have various issues associated with them. Um, And we do a lot of work to support companies uh, with measurement problems that they have. um, So that we can, they may come to us with a measurement problem that's related to dimensional nanometrology and we would work to see if we could help them solve that. So a whole range of things, plus representing NPL internationally um, with other colleagues from other national measurement labs that are interested in nanoscale metrology. There's quite a lot of collaboration uh, with other other countries, so a wide range of both the um, high-level metrology down to metrology that's uh, at the, to support companies that are developing products that uh, help improve our quality of life.
0: And Andrew, you mentioned nano positioning. How? What sort of tolerances can you? Can you achieve when you're trying to to position something? Is it is it nanometers as as nano uh, positioning suggests, or, or can you go down to angstroms, the size of an atom? What's so, uh, so what's the it, limit it, at the it moment? It depends very much
1: on the equipment that we're using. But one one piece of equipment that I have is something called an X-ray interferometer, which you could think of as a nano positioning system or ruler where the lines on the ruler are the atoms in a crystal, in a silicon crystal, and I can subdivide that distance. So we can position down to a few picometers.
0: Right, okay. And, and in, in that case you you're using X-rays because you light, the, the wavelength of light is too is too long and you wouldn't be able to uh, to to get the accuracy. You were using yes But
1: the X-ray interferometer, it's actually quite interesting. The spacing is governed by the spacing between atoms, not by the wavelength of the X-rays, unlike the optical interferometer, where we're subdividing the wavelength of light. Here we're diffracting X-rays through a crystal, and the fringe pattern we get, or the interference pattern, is related to the lattice spacing. And the lattice spacing of silicon... interesting is it's extremely well known and when it was when when the SI was redefined back in twenty nineteen there was a lot of news about the last artifact, the kilogram being replaced uh, by a definition based on Planck's constant, there was also a secondary realization of the meter for nanotechnology based on the lattice space in silicon, because it's extremely well known, has been measured very accurately. And so that has provided us with a bottom-up bottom up ruler for um, nanoscale metrology.
0: And I would imagine as, as, as Moore's law tries to progress and transistors and other electronic devices get smaller and smaller, nanometrology becomes more and more important and Perhaps you're you're every year you you're challenged more to to measure smaller distances with a with a higher accuracy. Is that uh, yes? Is very, that a part very, of your work?
1: Yes, it is very, very much so. Um, so with the um, some of these sort of quantum devices that are being developed, the dimensions. Affect the performance of the device, and the dimensions are only a few nanometers, and there can be an exponent. In some cases, there can be an exponential dependence. So the dimensional nanometrology is becoming very important. We've also done work with a nano positioning company whose products are used to support hard disk testing, and they are challenging us for smaller and smaller um, levels of uncertainty. And higher accuracy in the positioning of their systems, and how we can help them reduce the errors in the nano positioning systems and improve the uncertainty associated with the nano positioning, driven by hard disk um, production.
0: So it sounds like th- there's going to be no shortage of of papers coming out um, in the journal over the next hundred years. How do you see um, the journal progressing over the next century? I think
1: there are um, quite a lot of interesting areas of science that could lead to new work. So there's the the whole um, hot topic at the moment of artificial intelligence and digitalization. How is that going to affect the measurements? Um, there's also the idea of merging of scientific disciplines. So there's very much, um, as I said at the beginning, um, MST is very much an interdisciplinary journal, and we're seeing at NPL we have a life sciences division. Um, we have people doing environmental measurements. Measurements is no longer, it's, I'm not sure it ever was, but it's no longer just with one discipline. It is involving many areas of science, and I think that's going to increase. There's also going to be a trend for more automation of measurements, and as we move to sort of what's sometimes called industry 4.0 or digitalization of industry, there will be a need for greater measurement, greater accuracy of measurements in the workplace or in the factory floor. On the factory floor, a higher level of accuracy. So one of the challenges is transferring the high-level accuracy measurements that we can make at NPL to the industrial environment. Um, There's also will be a need for correlative measurements, so with the whole range of instruments and measurement techniques we have today, if two give slightly different answers, which one is correct? Are they being disturbed by an artifact associated with the instrument? Um, The need to ensure that all these measurements agree will become more important. And as ever, there'll be the need for faster, more accurate measurements over longer ranges. All of these are completing factors. And with the digitalization we put where we can record lots of additional data, as well as the and that we want to measure, there'll be the opportunities for better use of the metadata. So the, the additional data that we record that's not initially or specifically needed, how we can use that. So I think there are plenty of interesting areas for measurement um, over the next 100 years. And hopefully, lots of those will appear in measurement science and technology.
0: So, Andrew, I wanted to, to also ask you about the, the redefinition of SI units, which uh, happened in 2019. C- can you talk a bit about that? Why why were the units uh, redefined? Um, what, what's the advantage of the new way of looking at these units?
1: Well, the, the redefinition was to ensure that the seven base units from which we derive all other units are de- Are defined in terms of a physical constant rather than an artifact. So, yes, the last example of a base unit that was defined in terms of a physical artifact was the kilogram. Each country had its own kilogram, and every so often they would be compared. And having a base unit defined in terms of a physical artifact is not great because what happens is there's instability and everyone needs access to the artifact. So, the idea of Redefining units in terms of um, physical constants means that anyone with the appropriate equipment in the lab uh, and the knowledge can obtain traceability for their units or for their measurements. And uh, The other thing that happened when the SI was redefined, so I'd say this was one of the, in recent times, one of the major changes to measurement science and affects all areas of science and one of the other changes that happened then was the secondary realization of the meter which was defined in terms of the lattice spacing of silicon so traditionally we we have we measure length in terms of the wavelength of light or the frequency of light so the fundamental constant has been for many years has been the speed of light but the wavelength of light is of the order of several hundred nanometers And subdivision of that is required for optical interferometry. Um, Recognise that there are some issues associated with that, particularly when measuring in air. And the International um, Committee for Length, consultative committee for length that's overseen by the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, recognised that we needed a secondary bottom-up realisation, and the lattice parameter of silicon was chosen. So. For my area of work the nano dimensional nanometrology, that was very exciting because we now have a as a bottom up ruler as well as a top down ruler
0: i see and and with regards to the to the kilogram i mean you know for someone like me i can i can imagine a kilogram i don't know it'd be a lump of something um that i could hold in yeah. my hand what what do you use at npl now to to a define the a kilogram, kilogram is
1: as I said, it's defined in terms of Planck's constant, and the apparatus used is called a Kibble balance, after, named after its inventor from NPL, Brian Kibble, uh, formerly known as a watt balance, and the realization comes via electrical units. Um, and so the Kibble balance uses a moving a coil um, with uh, current flowing through it and is relating the mass to a force. Okay
0: and so how if how does that that very you know I'm guessing very um exquisitely made piece of equipment how does the the you know the 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 concept of the kilogram get broadcast out to you know say a, a scale at a greengrocers or a butcher's presumably there, is there a direct line between when that butcher's scale is when, when it's checked once a year, that there's a line that goes straight back to to NPL. Answer the question generically
1: because the answer applies to all units rather than just the kilograms. So NPL will maintain the SI system and have its high level realizations, which it can then of the base units, which it can then use to calibrate artifacts or instruments national calibration labs that in turn would calibrate um, instruments or artifacts used by other people. So the idea is that eventually in the butcher's shop or when you're buying your carpet and measuring it out, the measurement device that's used, be it scales or a ruler, has been calibrated. We know the error associated with at calibration we also know the error associated with the calibration standard used to calibrate that and the error associated with the whatever was used to calibrate the calibration standard right back up to the realization of the unit at NPL so it means and this is a very important concept this traceability because it means that you can relate two measure, if both if two measurements are made and they're both traceable you can re- relate them both back to the definition of the base unit and the answers should agree with each other
0: it's interesting you mentioned artificial intelligence um which i suppose is a gr- is a very hot topic at the moment in general how um i mean i can see how artificial intelligence machine learning would be used in um imaging applications but are, are there other applications in measurement science where where AI or uh, machine learning could prove useful? I think
1: one of the things that it could do is effectively build up knowledge of measurements that have taken taken place in the past, and an awareness of when there might be an issue with the measurement equipment, and to inform the user that something may not be right. one of the dangers we have today is with all these very nice instruments that um, are effectively black boxes. It's there is a tendency to trust the numbers coming out right. without necessarily questioning them. So the AI could help with that area. Um, so that, that that would be an that would be an example, and I'm sure there are many others in different areas of science. And I think every given the fact that it's a hot topic at the moment. I think lots of people are thinking, how can I, how can I relate AI to um, my area of science?
0: Well, that's a, a fascinating uh, discussion, Andrew. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Measurement Science and Technology is published by IOP Publishing, which also brings you Physics World. To mark the 100th anniversary of the journal, Andrew and his colleagues have put together a collection of articles that revisit some of the research themes published in the first volume, and also look at the latest developments in metrology. The collection includes papers on developments in the fields of ultrasound sensing with optical fibers, positioning with satellites, and mass measurements with electrostatic balances, all enabling technologies beyond the dreams of the metrologists of a century ago. You can find these papers and much more in Measurement Science and Technology, which you can find on the IOP Science website. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to our guest, Andrew Yakut, and our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we'll be chatting about an experiment on the Large Hadron Collider that focuses on neutrinos and dark matter. But in the meantime, please check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester talks to two physicists about the Bell-Burnell Graduate Scholarship Fund, which was founded in 2018 by the astrophysicist Jocelyn Bell-Burnell using money that she had won in two major prizes. Glester's guests are Helen Gleason, a liquid crystals and soft matter researcher at the University of Leeds, who is chair of the selection panel for the fund and a Fund Awardee, Joanna Sikowska, who is doing a PhD at the University of Surrey. This involves studying the formation and evolution of the Magellanic Clouds galaxies while searching for neighboring ultra-faint dwarf galaxies believed to contain large quantities of dark matter. This episode of the Stories podcast is called Cosmic Generosity, a selfless investment into the future of physics. And you can find it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.